0: Robert asked me if I would preach about the soul at rest. That's my life message. And that is one of the birthrights we have as followers of Jesus. But it's interesting that when Jesus gave his iconic passage, a little speech about rest, he didn't contrast rest with busyness. He didn't con- contrast it with anxiety. But he said in Matthew 11:28 28 and 29, come unto me all you who are weary. Has anybody experienced some weariness this year? (laughs) I know I have. You know, weary is being more than tired. There's a sense of uh, despondency and dejection that sort of goes along with it. And Jesus was saying, I know that weariness is going to be something you experience, and I'm inviting you to come after me, and I will give you rest So I guess you could call this message, the soul at rest, or how not to become weary. And really, uh, I only know one answer to that question, and that's what I'm gonna talk about this morning, but there's really only one thing that I have experienced in my life. The only way that I believe we can keep from getting weary in this world in which we live is to every day and throughout the day, frame our story within the grand story of God. We have to know his story. We have to live his story. It's not about bringing his story into ours, but bringing ourselves into his story. Story, And so this morning, I'm going to do two things. The first half of my message, I'm going to let the prophet Isaiah take us into that place where God shows his story. And we're going to experience it the way Isaiah in chapter 40 uh, talks about. And then in the second half, I'm going to actually get very practical and workshop on you because that's really who I am. That's my passion is what are we going to do with this? If we don't do anything with it, it isn't worth anything. So if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is going to show us how to lift our eyes above our story to the story of God. And it begins in verse 12. And what we're going to see, first of all, is the expanse of God's greatness, the expanse of God's greatness. He says in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or marked off the heavens by the span, or calculated the dust of the earth in the measure, and weighed the mountains in the balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Now, I could spend the entire message there, and I could talk about each one of those things. I'm only going to talk about two of them. I want to talk first about the waters. It says he holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. 75% of the earth is covered with water. And uh, I looked it up. It's 333,000 cubic miles of water that our God holds in his hand. But, you know, a week ago, Joe and I watched a special. If you haven't seen it on Netflix, it's a great family show. It's called uh, My Octopus Teacher. And um, it's about a South African man who went diving in the kelp forest, uh, and he went without uh, a tank or anything because he wanted to experience life as an underwater creature, and he went for almost every day for a year with camera equipment. And he, uh, what amazed me, and if you've seen any specials on Under the Sea, uh, the, the creatures and the life that is there that we never even see is so phenomenal. You, it's just captivating. And what was really amazing about this movie is he actually developed a sort of relationship with an octopus. And in that relationship, you learn things about an octopus you've never known. And when I saw that, I thought about the God who created that octopus and the God who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand and all those creatures you and I will go through our entire life and never have exposure to, but our God holds them in his hand. We need to raise our eyes to the expanse of his greatness. And then he talks about the heavens. Now, when I was a child, we were taught that we lived in the one and only galaxy, the Milky Way. And, you know, then they got telescopes that could actually see what was out there, and they began to expand the number. I remember when they first started saying, I think, we think there's 50 galaxies. Now, with the Hubble telescope, they say, we're estimating 100 billion galaxies. We live in only one of at least 100 billion galaxies. And what Isaiah says is God holds that in the span of his hand. The, the greatness of God, is, the diameter of the observable universe is 93 billion light years. And if you know what that means, you can come tell me later because it's way above my pay grade. <laughs> but just lift your eyes to the expanse of God's greatness. And Isaiah tells us this. And when we do, we begin to experience rest for our souls. The second thing Isaiah draws us to is the mystery of God's infinitude. The mystery of God's infinitude. We look in verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or has his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who led him in the path of justice and knowledge and who informed him of the way of understanding? Here is the mystery. Our God had no beginning. Now, we think about eternity future because we know we have eternal life if we put our trust in jesus but we don't think about the reality that god has always been there is no one like him he has always been who taught him what justice looks like nobody because he knew because he's god he's perfect in all his ways something we can't even wrap our minds around that he had no beginning and as we Think about that. It begins to bring perspective on every part of our lives. So, for example, in verses 15, he talks about nations. He says, "...behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, and all its beasts enough for a burnt offering." All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now, we live in what I would call a very egocentric nation. If you want to get news about the world, you won't get it probably on our news channels, because all they talk about is our nation. And I am very patriotic. I love our nation. I fly a flag. I am very committed to this country. When I go overseas, I come back and I want to kiss the ground, because it's such a wonderful country. But I want to tell you, for a God who had no beginning and has no end, we are not even a speck of dust on the scale. We are not, all the nations are a speck of dust. And this nation will not be here forever. I don't know how long it'll be here. Jesus may come back first, but if he doesn't, this nation will fold as every other nation has. And to God, he looks at infinity, and that's what he sees is a nation that will be nothing less than a speck of dust. He, he, um, then on verses 15 to 20, he goes on to talk about idols. He says, to whom then will you liken God? Or with what likeness will you compare him? As for the idol, a craftsman, crafts, casts it, and a silversmith, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith builds chains to go around it, and he who's too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, and then he seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman that can prepare an idol that will not totter. Now, don't get wrapped up in this physical idol because really for us, we have to remember that an idol is anything that has greater priority in our heart's affections than God. So that's any idol it might be uh, a job it might be a relationship it might be your house it might be your kids it might be uh, even your own identity can become an idol if we don't have our affections set first on God and he's telling us that, that that everything in this world is so finite when you think of the infinitude of God those things that you make as idols they're going to totter they're going to rot they're going to fall But God transcends it all. And then he goes on, he says in verse 21, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not known from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing and makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stalk taken root in the ground, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. Now, I've been through a number of presidential elections in my life. (laughs) I won't tell you how many, but I'll, I'll just say this. This was the most painful. And I have a feeling it was for just about everybody, no matter which side you landed on. This was not a fun process, and it still isn't. But to our God, who has no beginning and has no end, he looks at these people, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Ruth Ginsburg or Amy Conan Bryant, he says, no, there's going to come a moment when I... And they wither, and the storm carries them away. So if we want to have souls at rest, we have to lift our eyes to this God who is infinite and beyond and above all of that and then isaiah calls us to look at the wonder of god's omniscience the wonder of god's omniscience now that just means his knowledge he knows everything he says in verse 25 to whom then will you liken me that i would be be his equal says the holy one lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And then he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the knowledge of my God? God is all-knowing. He knows the stars by name. How many stars is that? Well, We already said in this one galaxy, there's probably 300 billion stars, and that doesn't even take into account all the other galaxies that we can see and the galaxies we cannot see, and our God knows them by name because he created them. You know, uh, the founder of Google decided to create a knowledge graph. We called it a knowledge graph. They gathered, and they have been gathering every day, all the information they could get from everywhere in every source, and and their goal was to have all knowledge in this. So when you Google something, you're referring to that knowledge base, and it's telling you what they've gathered. But uh, Bryn, the founder of, of Google, actually had a... Idea and a dream that one day that knowledge graph would be a chip that we could have implanted in our brains And then we would have access to all that knowledge at any moment in time now Honestly, that's not very far-fetched at this point in our world But let me tell you something that won't be on that knowledge graph The name of all the billions of stars in our universe and every universe. Because the only one who knows that is the God who created them. So Isaiah would say to you and I, go outside and look at the stars. Several years ago, I went through what uh, the saints of old call classically the dark night of the soul. And really what that was, was God removed his manifest presence from me. That means I couldn't hear his voice. I couldn't experience. I didn't have these wonderful times of worship. It was like I was in this black void when it came to God. And night, And that lasted almost two years. And night after night after night, I would go out in our backyard, and I would lay on the grass, and I would look up at the stars, and I would say, God, I know you're up there. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing it. I don't know why I'm going through this, but I know you're up there. I know you know those stars by name. And every now and then, a star would shoot, and I'd say, and you know that one just died. You know them all by name, and I know you know me by name. And somehow that would sustain me. You see, Isaiah goes on to say, why do you think you're hidden from a God who knows all these billions of stars by name? He looks at you. He sees you. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He loves you. You are not hidden from him. The God who is omniscient Looks at you, and it's 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 just sort of an amazing reality that this is the God who looks to us. This is a mystery, and then Isaiah calls us to look at uh, the sweetness of God's sufficiency. Verse twenty-eight: Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will run and not become tired. They will walk and not become weary. The sufficiency of God. He's in the trading business. He's here to trade his strength for your weariness. Every day he's here to trade whatever you need with his sufficiency. You need power, he has power. You need love, he has love. You need grace, he has grace, 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 grace to pour out on you. His sufficiency is the sweetest thing in the world. And I, when I was five years old, I walked down the aisle of a Baptist church to give my heart to Jesus. And so now I've followed him for over six decades. And there's one thing, if there's one thing I could tell you about that, is that he is sufficient. He is sufficient for whatever you're going through. He's sufficient for the long haul. I have a long ways to go yet, and I stumble badly. But he's sufficient. His sufficiency is so sweet. And I want you to just take a minute now and just take in this reality. We're reframing. Think about your life. Reframe it. Under the story of God, who is great, who stretches from infinity to infinity, who knows everything and knows you, just let that settle on you and let his sufficiency come and be enough for you this morning. Now, this would be a good place to end my message, (laughs) Because I think you'd all walk out feeling a little bit better, a little encouraged, right? But on the way home, the kids are going to fight. And you're going to try to pay bills and not have enough money. And you're going to think about Christmas where things have gone wrong before. And life is going to happen. And so now I've got to turn to the practical because this message won't do anything for you unless you take it and do something with you. So now we're going to the practical. And uh, Isaiah wrote this this book to a people who were heading into captivity for 70 years. He knew what their life was going to be like. I mean, I feel like this has been a 70-year pandemic, but it was nothing compared to what the Israelites were headed to. And another prophet who also tried to warn them of what they needed, uh, Jeremiah wrote this about uh, the rest that God had for him. This is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But then he adds this terrible phrase, but you said, we will not walk in it. And you know, I don't think the Israelites were just being, some were, but I think a lot of them weren't being blatantly rebellious. They were just being so distracted by the life they lived that they forgot to go to the source of rest. And to God, it was a refusal to walk in what he had for them. And so my first practical is, you're gonna have to fight for rest. You're going to have to fight for I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's really a paradox that you'll never fully understand, but the writers of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews, describes this beautiful rest that God has for us, and then he says, you're going to have to strive to enter into it. And what I want to tell you today, to me, the striving is going to land I'm going to get really, really practical right here. It's in finding a way to create space to be with God so that he can reframe your story every day. Now, this is a church that talks a lot about, we call it FaceTime, right? When I was younger, they called it quiet time. Now they call it FaceTime. And I love a church where a pastor won't hardly let a week go by that he doesn't remind you we need it. But I can tell you from my lifetime of experience, because this is my passion, and from seminary professors to pastors to college students, This discipline of getting with God consistently is a struggle. It's a struggle. And you may not struggle, and if you don't, that's great. You'd be praying for the rest of us who do. So we have to fight for it. Now, if I were in a workshop, I would ask you, what are all the reasons we struggle? And I'd get a list of about 20, and I could tell you what they all are. But I'm going to tell you my number one reason. And uh, there are a few exceptions. There are times I don't want anyone to feel guilt, self-condemnation. I'm sweeping that away right now, okay? Young moms with little babies, people that have three jobs. I mean, there are times when it just feels impossible. But for most of us, this is what your problem is. You haven't done it consistently for long enough to rewire your brain and make it a non-negotiable. I'm going to say that again. You haven't done it consistently for long enough to rewire your brain and make it a non-negotiable. You see, our brains, what they've discovered about the brain is that we are what we repeatedly do. So if you're repeatedly fl- playing video games, that's what you become. And the only way to get consistency in this, I wish there was an easier answer, but there's not. It's just Do it, and that's what you have to fight for. So that's the first thing, you're gonna have to fight for rest. I would say the place to start is getting that consistent time. Second, make scripture your closest friend. Now, I know Jesus is our best friend, but he loves the word, so he's going to let me say that today. Make scripture your closest friend, uh, and I want to say, I want to highly recommend, if you don't use a physical Bible, get one. You don't have to carry it everywhere, but when you're at home, when you're getting that time, you how can, you got to get the whole story of God. Now, this is a great big Bible, but when I was in college, they, had, they finally came out with a version of the Bible that took into account. Everything they learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls And it was so exciting to get this Bible Even though it was so big and bulky And when I was 30, my mother had it rebound in leather And I hadn't used it in several years But I went and got it off the shelf for this message Because I memorized Isaiah 40 out of it a long time ago And I wanted to I just didn't want to be confused with a different version Because I have some other versions So I got it out And as I looked at it, it was like bringing an old friend into my arms i i love this word the word of god make it your closest friend this book i have notes in the margins i have highlights and underlines it tells the story of god tells my story and his story in fact i opened it this morning i didn't even know it was in here i have a picture i put in here of me as a five-year-old because i wanted to remember how god sees me as a child because i'm always working so hard and uh this is a little tract Not I, but Christ. I've had since I was in college. Your Bible will be your story. So so take it seriously. Spend time in it. Get God's whole story. Not just the little memes you get on social media or the little things you can put on your wall. It's not enough. You've got to get the entire story of God. And then the third thing is get daily digital Sabbaths. Daily digital Sabbaths. Now, a Sabbath is simply a rest, right? And uh, our staff takes Sabbath every Friday. We try to rest and not work. But I'm going to tell you that that what what technology has done to your brain can only be combated by taking a rest from technology. And I know this is crazy uh, because we live, it's like food, right? We can't live without technology. We can't live without food, but we still have to set some boundaries with it, don't we? So I want to tell you two things that the internet and technology has done to your brain and that you can you need to combat. The first thing is that it has wired your brain for constant motion, right? You're constantly moving around, so your brain has to move from this to this to this to this to this to this, to this and so you're constantly distracted, So if you need your phone or your device in your time with the Lord, put it on airplane mode and don't respond to anything. But I'm guessing most of you just need to not have it with you. You need a daily digital Sabbath. The second thing that it trains your brain to do is skim the surface. Because Right when you're reading some passage of scripture, even on Bible Gateway this happens, some ad for the boots you were looking at on Amazon comes up, right? It's trying to pull you away constantly. And you think about this God I just talked about. How can we think deeply about this God if our brains are wired to just skim the surface? So get those Sabbaths put it away. You can live without it. I'm not saying for a whole day. I'm saying put it away for that space so God can frame your life in his story. And then our last thing uh, I want to talk about is is we need to set an intention, and we're going to do that in just a minute. Uh, But I want to just share just one little testimony about why this is just so important to me and why I'm ending with this instead of on the lofty heights that Isaiah took us. Uh, I grew up in a very legalistic church, and I... You know, I did whatever you were supposed to do to be a good Christian. That's what I grew up thinking being a Christian was all about. And uh, when I was 19, an older aunt challenged me to fall in love with Jesus, and no one had ever said anything like that to me before. We didn't talk like that then. There weren't songs like that. But it started to change my life. But legalism dies hard, (laughs) and it took a long time. But I'm also an Enneagram 3. I'm an achiever. So I knew the Christian thing to do was spend time with God every day. So I was committed to doing it. And I did it not always with the best motives, right? In fact, one time I decided I read a book by a woman who said she got up in the middle of the night when her kids were asleep and spent an hour with the Lord. I'm not recommending that. Uh, But I thought, well, if she can do it, I can do it. And so I decided to do that. We were in seminary. I had a one-year-old baby. And uh, I went to the store, and I bought my favorite ice cream, Rocky Road. And I put it in the freezer. And the way I motivated myself was that ice cream. I could have a bowl of ice cream and then have my quiet time with the Lord. And um, I'm only only—I'm t- not telling you that to, to, to say it wasn't I spiritual because it wasn't spiritual. <laughs> Actually, I think the only thing I gained out of that was a few pounds. So I'm not recommending that. What I'm just trying to say, I'm just trying to tell you how committed and zealous I was to get it right. And then one many years later, God really gave me a true understanding of grace. And I came to realize that everything I'd ever been or done was initiated by him, empowered by him. It wasn't about me. It wasn't what I did for him. He wasn't interested in that. And I was so uh, changed in that moment. But a uh, couple of years ago, I was mentoring a young woman who was telling me how hard it was for her to get her quiet time. Her dog kept interrupting her, and this happened and that. And she said, should I just make myself? And I thought about it, and I, for the first time in my life, I said, yes, yes. And then I told her uh, this story I've just told you, and I said, the one thing, I have no regrets For that time I put in, even though my motives were wrong, even though I thought I was commending myself to God and I wasn't. But what happened is somewhere along the way it wired my brain that doing that was as important as eating and sleeping and drinking and breathing. And I no longer had to make it something I had to do. It was just wired into my brain. And that's why I want you to be to get serious about this this morning. And so, setting an intention, science tells us if you set an intention, your brain sends messages to your entire body that says this is what we're going to do. So I'm gonna. There should be an, a, an intention. You can fill out. You can write it on your uh, device, or if you have a pen and paper. And I'm going to read it. Can you, you got it on both screens? Good. So this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to end this morning. So it starts with I, and then you write your name, I, Trisha, or whatever your name is, on this Sunday, November 29th, 2020, the year we'll never forget, by the grace of God. Because let me just tell you, if you even are responding to this message right now, it's God's grace that's making you respond. So it's all about his grace. Plan to spend, okay, how much time? You decide, now let me tell you something. For the brain, consistency is the most important thing. So if you can only do 10 minutes a day, do it every day. If you can do more, do more, rather than here and there. If you can, do it every day. So write how many minutes with Jesus on how many days of the week. I recommend seven if you can. Uh, but if you feel like you just can't do that for some reason, then you put however many days. Beginning, when are you going to start? Tomorrow is, is it December 1st tomorrow? thirty days after September, April, June, and no, no there's thir- Tuesday. So tomorrow's November 31st. Yeah, so you can put that or you can put Tuesday, December 1st. What a great December it would be. What a great Advent it would be. Now, here's how we're going to end this time. I'm going to give you time to just do that right now.